Hello, my name is Martina Flor. I'm a learning artist, author, and educator. Do you know what my most powerful tool to create my work is? Mm -mm. Not my hands, mm -mm. not my brain, but my eyes. I've been training my observation skills since day one, and that had a major impact on my skills and success as a commercial lettering artist. Not only that, it has helped me find inspiration everywhere around me and staying away from endless scrolling, down Google, Pinterest, and Instagram. Have you ever been in the situation of looking at your drawing, knowing that something is off or that it's not quite ready yet, but not knowing how to fix it? Fear not. This training called Letter Hunters will help you develop what I call your typographic eye by just using inspiration from your surroundings. If you want to improve your work, you need to start by sharpening your observation skills. Join me and become the best letter hunter in town. See you inside. Today, I'll be having a conversation with Gemma O'Brien, an internationally renowned designer and artist known for her bold graphics, illustrative lettering, and murals. Her work has been commissioned by Apple, Nike, Tiffany & Co., Google, and the New York Times. Outside her commercial design work, she explores language, nature, and the human experience through her art practice. Gemma has been in business for over 10 years. She has worked for huge clients and has traveled the world to be on stage at dozens of design conferences. What I love about this conversation with Gemma is how she allowed us to see the normal person behind a great artist. She spoke openly about her first steps into the business, the thinking behind some of the moves that she had to make throughout her career, and even share why she decided to stay in Sydney, where she lives now, while having the opportunity to move to cities, quote-unquote, where opportunities are. I believe that a creative business is a place to explore and discover one's talents and creative voice, and Gemma really takes that to the next level. Enjoy this inspiring conversation with Gemma O'Brien. Great. So, hello, Gemma. Thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me. So, Gemma, I like to start by the beginning. Um, of this conversation and I would like to go chronologically so later we can dig into different topics and different things that have to do with your creative path um, but I want to know where did you grow up and what's your family like? Of course so I grew up in Brisbane which <laughs> is in Queensland Australia mm. um, and I grew up in a, a few different places. I moved house a lot. Um, lived in a place called Mount Glorious. Um, I have one sister and yeah, I had a very creative, quite free childhood. Yeah, it was good. Um, in which way you, you feel that it was creative? Uh, were your parents, you know, in the art world or yeah? Well, they weren't, they weren't in the art world like you know, in printing or design or anything like that. But my mom is an early childhood teacher. So she's a kindergarten teacher. And my dad is a builder, but he also designs a lot as well. So I guess it was creative in the sense that my mother, you know, working with young kids and like she kind of 
I think opened up opportunities to be free and creative and use my hands and that sort of thing. And then my dad, uh, you know, I always remember he could draw quite well. He didn't go out of his way to draw, but if we saw something or if he was sketching for some designs, so he'd often have like papers around that we'd make. And I think it was more creative in the sense that it was like open. There wasn't like anyone saying, you know, don't, don't create art, don't draw. It was kind of encouraged. Um, so yeah, not from an artistic, traditionally artistic family, but mm. you know, openly creative. And how did that go afterwards? So you grew up in this family where creativity was like a common thing or it was allowed and it, they were open, you know, to allow you to explore creativity. Um, how did you actually get into the path of design and, you know, what you do today, which is, you know, um, art and um, illustration and typography? Yeah, it's interesting, actually, because when I think about it, like the, when I think of myself being like six years old, I mm. imagine myself drawing me creative. But then in between, um, I don't know what happened, but some ideas started to come uh, throughout primary school and high school um, somewhere. I don't really know where that maybe an artistic career wasn't something I should pursue. So mm. I was always very academic. I was very good girl, did all my homework straight away, you know, high achiever um, in lots of different areas, like not just art, but, you know, maths and every and writing, everything. So some influence came into my mind that I should choose a smart career. And um, so when I did finish high school, I ended up going to law school mm. um, for about a year and a half before I actually dropped out and made the switch to a Bachelor of Design. So something happened along the way. <laughs> and how was that moment of telling your parents like, hey, I'm gonna, you know, thinking of, I got a picture how, how growing up in that family was and how was for your parents hearing from you like, hey, I'm gonna pursue a career in law. What were they saying about that? Were they surprised? Were they like, okay, yeah, sure. Gemma is definitely born for this and yeah you know i i don't remember the specific conversation i think one of the other things when i think about both of my parents they've they've, they've divorced when i was younger so it was two separate um mm. people like as i went into this path of my adulthood and choosing my career but i actually don't remember what they said um i don't i don't think it would have been necessarily a surprise because at least from memory whenever i make a decision i am like very you know confident and like this is what i'm doing so i think i might have been in that same way about choosing law school and it was only you know after getting into it and maybe getting to know myself outside of a school context and reflecting a little bit more that realizing maybe that wasn't something i wanted to do but i i think they're both very open in the sense that there was like go along with whatever i say <laughs> I see. And what were the things that you felt like you started this law, you started with law school. Um, mm. What were the things like the cues that gave you the hint like, hey, maybe this is not for me. Maybe this is not what I'm supposed yeah. to be doing. Look, I don't know. I'm trying to remember myself at that time as an 18 year old. Um, I feel like it's so young. Um, you think you know everything, but you know nothing. Yeah. Um, and I think I 
you know, deep down, I was like, this is the right thing to do. And I was studying really hard and I'd come home and I would read, you know, these legal precedents for like four hours every night, you know, this basic stuff is part of the thing. And I was getting good grades. It was something like deep down, I was like, is this truly where I want to be for the rest of my life? And I think it was just an unsettling sense that I knew that this wasn't my like true self or what I really wanted to be doing. Um, and I do remember coming home one day from university and like Googling to see, like maybe it wasn't Google back then, um, <laughs> to just look up, uh, you know, what, you know, what, what's an alternative, you know, looking up other degrees and looking at design and, you know, that cliche thing of like being a graphic designer where you design your favorite bands, right? You know, cover, you hear people say that, but that was like my only sense of what, career options i think you know rather than doing fine art which felt mm. a little bit too like scary maybe design mm. was a little bit safer but still creative i think so after after a year or two you said on mm -hmm. in, la, in law school you decided to uh switch careers and you you signed up for a, a graphic design degree yes it was a bachelor of design uh still in queensland at this point um It was specializing in communications. And then I moved to Sydney and continued that at the College of Fine Arts here. So yeah, graphic design, did a bit of textiles and a mixture of things. And was, you know, how, what were the cues then in that experience that told you like, hey, this is, you know, I feel very comfortable here. This is something I want to do. Um, and, you know, I want to stay in this area. Yeah, I remember just like the first year, like I think the first year of design school and maybe it's similar in different schools around the world, but like it's quite broad. You learn like, I think there might have even been like a little bit of life drawing and all that observation. And uh, I just, rem I was so happy. It was like, I was the happiest girl in the world. It felt, it felt like the most blissful period when I look back. And I actually live now um, close to the university I went to in Sydney. And I still like get these warm feelings about that period of like, you know, being a beginner, but like being a beginner in something that you're like really excited about. And it feels, it just felt right. Um, so I think those were the cues that, you know, the excitement to like re really being wanting, like wanting to learn. And um, yeah, it, it was really a really good period. And what came after that? So, In my second year, I got introduced to the letterpress studio and this was, um, this was real, like we'd learn about typography in, in the first year, but I didn't really click with it then. It was just, you know, InDesign and fonts and I was not interested. Um, and so one of my teachers like showed me how to use the letterpress studio and it was almost like, um, you know, so many people love lettering now like with social media it's like it's very prevalent but you probably know from that period it was like it was almost like discovering a secret <laughs> nobody knew about and you know learning letterpress it was very physical setting type by hand and it was like this doorway open to like a history and then you're seeing letters in your environment and you're like holy shit like this is things that's it's been here all along but there's these histories and these stories and it was just like yeah it was very exciting and so that really then set the path for like what i was interested in for the rest of my graphic design degree 
So you started experimenting with, with these letterpress machines and were you creating a specific pieces of work or just the idea of combining letter forms seemed interesting for you? Yeah, so I like started to incorporate it into like our set university assignments. Um, you know, I would make little word puns and poems and set them by hand. And then I also started a blog called For the Love of Type. Um, it would have been, I think, in 2007, 2008. And, you know, on the blog, I would take photos uh, of signs and share projects and I started using the name Mrs. Eves because I discovered the story um, about this font uh, designed by Emma Gray and this history around it and I thought this is like a cool pseudonym that I could use to write my blog and um, so for well, my second or third I think it was third year graphics project we had to create this kind of like Um, campaign and so I decided to write all over my body in Sharpie uh, in like my newfound lettering skills and you know I look back now and I cringe at this like art school project but you know at the time it was like YouTube had just been invented um, it was just the concept of like a viral video had begun and so it was this video of me like writing these words all over my body and like You know, and so I put it on there for my tutors to mark and it kind of got picked up by a few different typography blogs and was like, was definitely like this moment in my, the beginning of my career that, you know, changed things. Can you tell us, well, I know a little bit the specifics about yeah. this, but I would love to hear the story. I know you okay, may have okay, told you. this story millions of times, but it's super interesting because it's kind of like, I feel that, You know, nowadays, there's kind of like a lot of people kind of searching for that kind of effect, the viral yes. effect of something like creating something that really triggers your career. And, yes. you know, I know that this is like a, like a, a very, and a story that doesn't happen so often, but in your case, it did happen. So that, yeah. that specific video really triggered a series of events that yes. really, you know, made a mark in your career. So can you tell a little bit about what happened you. with that video? Absolutely. So I posted the video on YouTube and onto my blog. And, you know, at the time, the only people who were looking at the blog, as far as I knew, were like, you know, typography, world people, not many people. It wasn't, didn't have a big audience. But there were a few people who would maybe email me and, and, and chat. And A few weeks after I posted the video, um, this article appeared on the font blog uh, website, which at the time was the blog component of the font shop, you know, which sold fonts, um, like the marketing arm of it. And, you know, it was in German and I didn't speak German and I, you know, I wasn't really across the industry. I was still only 20 years old, like very young designer, like with little skills and just putting out these, you know, experiments and passion things. But I got an email from uh, Adam, uh, Adam Twardock. I, I think I remember his name. Do you know him? Yeah. Yeah. And he, he shared this article with me and he said, look, I thought you might be interested in reading a translation because it's on Font Shop's blog. Mm. It's quite, you know, it's got a big readership in Europe. Mm. Um, 
And the title of the article was uh, Amateur Designerin Hat Sex mit Buchstaben. <laughs> amateur designer has sex with letters. Um, and it kind of started about the video that I had made, but then also went on to talk about like, you know, who is Mrs. Eves? Because I was using this name on my on my own blog and it was like, is she a student? Is she a designer? Uh, I think it was critical uh, in a way. I, it's been a very long time. I don't even know if the article still exists anywhere, but it was quite critical of, of me and what I was putting out there. And what ended up happening was a lot of readers of the blog kind of came back, I guess, in support or said, you know, like, you know, don't give this person such a hard time. Maybe it's a young designer experimenting, exploring. Um, and so then after that, I received a message on Facebook from Jürgen Siebert. Do you know yes, Jürgen? Yes. yes. And he said, so, just he, to, he to, give a little bit, to give a little bit of context, uh, Jürgen Siebert was the head of marketing at that time of Funshop, which is one of the biggest type foundries here in Germany and all, all over the world. Um, it was bought by Monotype recently, but that's a different yeah. story. But yeah. he was also an, um, the organizer of a big international conference, which was Type of Berlin. So he was a very influential person in the world of, um, of type. Just to give a little yeah. bit of context of who Jürgen Siva is. <laughs> and, you know, I didn't really know this either. And so when he then sent me a message on Facebook a few weeks after the blog post and the response from the blog post, and it was something like, you know, he said, I'm the one who wrote the article, you might have seen it, and uh, I would like to invite you to speak at Typo Berlin. And so, you know, I'm like a third year design student <laughs> in Australia. And, you know, there's not a, there wasn't a big typography community here at the time. It wasn't meant big design. You know, I'd been to like maybe one design conference in Australia and I was like in shock, you know, like, yeah, yeah. and so I said, yes, I don't know what I was thinking <laughs> saying, yes, I said, yes. And then, I well, amazing. Yeah, at that time, it, at that time, it's kind of like a free trip to Berlin, if you, if you like. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And I think uh, there must have been some kind of like naive confidence that came with it without like, with not knowing never, you know, not knowing the world of the design, never having spoken to a conference. So I said yes. And then a year later, uh, it was the following June. So they flew me out and I had to do like a 45 minute, you know, a standard conference talk. Um, and, you know, I, I was aware that I was a student that I'm not going to be coming with, you know, new fonts that I designed or my client list. So I just basically you know, I did a talk as I was, you know, as a student and talked about the things that inspired me and my story. And um, I made like a little mini documentary with about the uh, designers in Australia working with type, because I think that was at the time, you know, not it, it wasn't as well known. So I wanted to hear from like experts, I guess, in the field, uh, like to see if there was like an Australian voice, I guess, to the typography and design mm. scene here. And you know, so this was like this whirlwind experience um, when I was 21 and kind of came back to Australia after the conference and just went back to my regular design school classes. But, you know, obviously it it had a huge impact then on the course of my career, um, having done that. Yeah, and I want to ask you a little bit about that. I have like a lot of questions. First, I can 
I can imagine, you know, as a 20-year-old being featured on such a big um, blog at that time in the typographic world um, and also having, you know, a critical or having someone criticizing you on what you had done. I, I, I was just thinking, like, what... What were you feeling? What were your feelings around that? What were what what does you know? It, did you yeah. feel any anxiety around what they were saying? Did you think that it was funny or how was that? Because nowadays with social media and you know the the, the online world and being featured in that you know on blog posts and stuff, this can be something really great for someone and can be flattering, but it can also be really diminishing and can make you feel really bad about what you're doing. So yeah. how was that for you? Look, to be honest, I think at the time when it happened, uh, you know, because the YouTube video of this, this, you know, art thing that I did was also taking off. I think I was like swept up in the excitement and I don't remember feeling like negative feelings about mm. the, the the writing, but I think it's because I almost felt like at that point I had nothing to lose. Like I didn't have a career, you know, like, so yeah. I was just swept up in the craziness of the whole um, experience. But I do think that afterwards um, it was a little strange in the sense that, um, you know, I, I got invited to speak then the following year, um, that typo again straight afterwards mm. and I said no because I felt like well I actually you know I want to begin making real work you know begin mm. my career as a real designer I guess not as like a a gimmick um, art school project thing that just got attention you know I think I wanted to pursue more um, and so in the period when I came back I, I think I withdrew a little bit from like the very much like the type focus community and you know i got a job when i finished design school working at animal logic which was like visual effects and graphics but not really like lettering and type focused and i stopped writing on the blog and i kind of like just went away and mm. like followed a bit more of what felt like a natural path um and it probably wasn't until maybe five years six years after that, that I started to, you know, put myself out there again as a freelancer and share my work. And I almost wanted to distance myself in a big way from that being the same person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can totally see what you mean that, it, you know, when, once you create a product and that product works, the kind of like the, the industry wants the same product you know, to use the same product all over again. And you didn't want to become that product of that art school girl who painted yeah, typography exactly. on her body and just, <laughs> exactly. you know, do that to uh, throw your entire life. Um, yeah. And I was wondering, like, you, you mentioned that you came back or you just pulled out of this, um, of these things that you were doing with the blog and kind of try to explore what you wanted to do. So what what did you do to do that? So you were still on arts in art school and you decided to employ yourself somewhere or you decided to go freelance. How was that? Yeah, so there was a couple of things. As part of the design degree in the final year, we had to do industry uh, placement 
or you know job at work experience so that was my first job was part mm. of the university requirement uh, at animal logic where i then kind of stayed on uh, as a designer and i continued to work in that same industry where it was more film and titles and graphics focused for another year after that um for another company called fuel vfx so i was doing things like a junior designer would um you know some of the jobs would be like small and the things that the lowest person in the art department does like setting up the lines at the end of the insurance commercial and you set the type at the end and then other times you know i got given more creative freedom where I could come up with concepts for a little animation or a title sequence for a TV show mm. and those those parts of it I really like enjoyed and thrived and took on my own voice a little bit more um mm. and there was one that was quite a turning point in at my job at Fuel VFX where I got to kind of art direct and oversee an animation for Taronga Zoo which is one of the big kind of conservation wildlife zoo organizations here in sydney and it was an opportunity for me to like basically do all the artwork so i created these watercolor pieces and someone else animated it and i got a lot of creative ownership and i think that sparked something in me where i remembered uh i guess the joy of having more creative control um and seeing something through that wasn't just you know i think there's lots of great things about working in a team and i learned a lot of those in those years but then at that moment i was like okay i'm maybe i'm ready to go out on my own again or do something but i had this safety of a full-time job uh and as a young person in my 20s and getting a full-time wage in the, in a good design company it, it felt like that's what you strive for so i didn't have the guts immediately to just be like i'm going to quit Uh, but a few months after that project the company went into liquidation and so everybody lost their job um and that was it for me i was like am i going to go back and work somewhere else or mm. is this the time that i um uh, begin my freelance career and so and i did that, that. so you did, did that <laughs> yeah and how were the first like You know, you were left out of your job, um, and you were actually a, f a, a, a full-time employee. So you didn't have mm -hmm. any structure prepared to market yourself and offer. You know, go knock some doors and get some clients. So how did you do that? How did you yeah. um, went from being full-time employed, uh, being left out of the job, and you know, starting your own practice? Yeah, it was it was a very interesting time and it was different to now because you know it was the beginning of Instagram like the early about mm. 2000 I think Instagram started in 2011 maybe 2010. So this was around like 2011 2012 and you know I didn't have a plan. I didn't have a business model or like you know, specific clients or anything. But I did know about uh, Jackie Winter Group, which was like an illustration agent in Australia. Mm. So they represented a lot of illustrators whose work I had followed. So they had been on my radar. And around the same time that I left, they had reached out about one specific project. So they weren't reaching out to like take me on as an artist officially, but they had said, you know, an advertising client wants to work with you. So 
do you want to do this project together? Almost like, I guess, and see how it goes. Um, so of course I said yes. And it was for uh, Woolworths, which is like a big uh, supermarket chain here in Australia, one of the big two for their Christmas campaign. And they wanted some custom lettering. Um, and so this was like, I was, again, it was almost like that feeling of being in art school. Um, this like so excited, like being offered this, like a professional job um, as a freelancer. And it was, you know, a good budget. And yeah, it was like a whole new world was opening up again. So I did that project. And then from that point signed with Jackie Winter Group and that helped, you know, get the flow coming through of some initial work. Um, and at the same time, you know, I was, posting a lot on Instagram at this time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I wasn't working full time. So I had like this free time to explore experiments and, you know, I just put it out there. It was just, you know, like I'd do some calligraphy tests in ink and I'd just put out the process, put out my inspiration, mm -hmm. treated it like a blog. And that I think started to also um, open up, you know, new clients as well. So I want to make a left turn here. Um, yeah. And, you know, because I feel that something particular about you as an artist is that you don't only do, um, not only do commercial work for clients and for brands, but you also do this, you know, you also have this artistic exploration of yours and you work for, you create your own um, exhibitions at galleries. You're about to also have, you have an upcoming exhibition on China Heights, which is the gallery you work with and you mm -hmm. usually, um, you know, you usually um, show your, do your shows with, which is the China Heights exhibition, or sorry, China Heights gallery. And it's coming up on February 11th through March yeah. 11th. Um, so I'm going to add this to the show notes. But what I wanted to ask you is, How do you get into this world? Because on one side, you have this commercial work you do for clients and brands. And on the other side, you have this amazing space to explore your work and to find new ways of expression. Um, you know, I see you on Instagram sometimes um, and I feel that you allow yourself some time to just spend time at your studio creating this concept for an exhibition. And I wonder, how do you get there as an artist? Mm -hmm. You know, how do you get there while making work for clients where you have to, you know, work with deadlines and work with, feedback rounds and how do you manage to to get that space to create work for your own shows um, and also how do you engage a gallery to work with you so there's a bunch of questions here um, but I know that I read somewhere that one of the biggest milestones in your career was creating this uh, or painting a first la uh, a large scale installation in 2012. And I wonder how that influenced what you do today, which is, you know, this big part of your work that is creating shows or personal shows and exhibiting at galleries. Yeah, it's a good question. And, you know, the the balancing commercial work with working with brands and clients and the gallery stuff is like it's something i'm constantly thinking about mm. and recalibrating and 
sometimes, you know, there was a, there's long periods where I'm so busy with commercial work that I neglect the more open art practice. And then, mm. you know, this last year I've had this very shift in balance where I've been in one place in Sydney and had a lot of studio time to focus on an exhibition. So it kind of ebbs and flows, but I think I do like having both of these worlds. Sometimes I'm like, I just want to do this. And, so, and sometimes I want to do this, but I do actually think there's like strengths to having both. Um, I think the first time I started working with China Heights was, so this is seven years uh, it's been that I've been working with them as a gallery. So mm. I remember them, you know, as a, as an art student, I remember going to shows at their, at their gallery and, you know, they're quite different to a lot of the other, I guess, art galleries in Sydney. It's definitely more of a, um, it's like they have a unique approach of working with artists and they often work with people on the edges of like design and art and then more traditional contemporary artists as well. Um, I think I might've even, I don't actually remember how it happened, but I know for my first show, I reached out to Ed, the um, gallery director, and maybe I even just said, like, I'd love to do an exhibition. Like, I'd put the, you know, put it out there and it happened, <laughs> you know. So, I and from that point forward, you know, it's always been something that when I'm taking a time from my commercial work, I'll either be thinking about, like, you know, what can I do in the show or once the deadline is there, be working towards this this work and the first few shows had these big installations these murals um and i think what happens is it's always those like free more open experiments that you do that start to shape the client work that starts to come mm. in so mm. uh you know putting out these installations often some of these early art pieces i did will be stuff that then clients um, bring back into the briefing for a project. And, you know, it's not the same thing. Often with brand work, it has to be more legible or it has to be different in some yeah. ways, but it's almost like a, a reference point in some way. And yeah, sometimes it takes a couple of years though. Like I did this exhibition with them where I had this, the word heaven, um, mm. cause the gallery's up all of these stairs. So it's quite high up. And I liked the idea that you're like walking up to this, um, big text that said heaven. And that style that I explored in that mural then like a couple of years later got clients asked about kind of recreating something similar for big commissions. And so it's always interesting to see, you know, the way that it flows into different work. Yeah, that I wanted to ask you a little bit about this, kind of go into the, I would say the, the reality of creating these shows right because i mm -hmm. i think that you are if correct me if i'm wrong but you you do this regularly um every season or every other season so you create an exhibition with this gallery so you have been working with them um and creating this exhibition and exhibiting in this gallery right and i wonder I can imagine that there's a lot of thought and time that goes into creating the concept for the exhibition, but also you know, actually creating the work. Mm -hmm. And I wonder really how that works monetarily. And if that works monetarily in terms of like, you were just saying that one of the pieces you did once for... Um, for, that ex for an exhibition later got commissioned by... 
I remember it was a jewelry brand. Stephanie Can it be? And Co. Yeah, yeah Stephanie and Co. Mm -hmm. exactly. So that, you know, that kind of led or attracted the attention of a big brand who commissioned you for and actually paid money for that. Right. So I, and I wonder how, you know, for those listening, for those listening as well, like, I wonder how the art world works in terms of, you know, the art and gallery world works in terms mm. of making money for those artists. If it's more of a platform where you show your work and you get um, connected with a lot of different people, or if it actually also brings some monetary reward. Yeah, so I guess like with those early exhibitions, in addition to the mural, I would also have like works on paper that would be resold or like with my upcoming exhibition, there's no mural and there's canvases and works on paper that are all for sale. So obviously, you know, it's a diff completely different model to like working with brands and, um, you know, the way that you do pricing around like the usage and the licensing and that sort of thing. But I guess the way that I see it and see myself is like the umbrella world of like being an artist or a designer like it's so fluid and mm. I think it would be different if I was only doing contemporary art and relying mm. on that as my sole livelihood mm. um but it's I think it's a matter of like kind of balancing you know obviously I want to do these creative things um but if it's just an installation and it's only there for an experience and there's nothing to sell um, then that changes the dynamic of, of working with a gallery. So I think it's about balancing, um, you know, it, it's almost like I sometimes feel like, okay, I want to do these crazy things, but I also, you know, I do like the idea of like selling work and creating mm. things that people can keep. Um, and I do also like working with brands where it's almost like a merging of maybe some part of myself with maybe a brand's idea. So yeah, it's, It's, did I answer your question? <laughs> yes, it does. And I have also a follow-up question to this, which is, you know, because the, as I said, the gallery world and the art, yeah, the art selling world um, is not so widely spread among mm. commercial artists. There is a few yeah. commercial artists that actually get their work exhibited at galleries or they work towards creating shows that are exhibited at galleries. And I think it is interesting to understand how that world works because it mm. works very different from, you know, a client coming to you, commissioning uh, artwork for a, a specific campaign, right? Um, and I wonder if the gallery actually has a say on the on the concept of the show and the pieces that you are creating. If they come to you and say like, hey, um, if they, they come to you kind of with the, Uh, with their knowledge and their experience at knowing what sells and knowing what the people is looking for. Um, and they tell you like, hey, Gemma, I think that, you know, this piece is too out there. Perhaps you can create something that is less colorful or more in the, you know, gray tones or whatever. I'm just, you know. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think, I don't know. I can't speak for obviously other galleries and how they work with their artists, but Uh, it's not like that at all. I think it's very different from mm. it. There's no rounds of review or client <laughs> feedback. Um, it's definitely more like, you know, trust the artist um, mm. to go for it. You know, with this most recent exhibition I did because I was here and in the studio and like 
not traveling as much. I did have the, the, the gallery come and have a look in my studio as I was working just to like, you know, get some feedback just because I wanted to share the process. Mm. Um, but it's not as though there's any kind of rules around what I could do. There might be some discussions around like, you know, I was originally doing like big pieces on paper and we would think about things like, okay, well, if somebody wants to buy that overseas and it's framed and it's glass, we, we might think about like logistical things, but like overall creatively, it's definitely, you know, in my hands, which, you know, I think can be, a great thing but it's also yeah like you can it is a big responsibility and a lot of creative effort like you think you want freedom and then you have it <laughs> and you realize that sometimes that could be harder and it's easier if someone tell, giving you feedback quickly yeah and it's also interesting to to see or to hear that as much as free, you know creative freedom you have to create this um this exhibition, there's also a thinking behind, which is like, okay, what, how can we, you know, how can we compensate the gallery and the artist for all the work invested? And, uh, you know, if it's, if you're creating a mural or an installation in the gallery, how can you create other additional pieces that you can sell to people that is coming to the mm -hmm. exhibition, right? So there is a thinking, you know, it's not art for the art, um, for doing art just like that. But it's also, there is a thinking behind of how can we compensate for the time we invested into uh, creating this, right? Which I think is yeah. super important. And we we often forget about speaking about this. Like, hey, how, yes. how can we compensate the artist? It's not just doing art for, the, for art's sake, but, you know. Yeah, and I think that's it's definitely something that I think about also in terms of like the experience of art. Like when I think about when I went to some of my first galleries, like when I was younger or even when I first came to Sydney and I went to like a Yayoi Kasama exhibition and like, you know, you go to these galleries where they have acquired like these really big name artists and it's, you maybe it's $20 or it's free and you come and it's about a public experience in a way, you know, and I love that part of art or traveling to different countries and you hear about these people and it's, you know, obviously it's different than to go into like contemporary artists who are making work now to smaller spaces um, when it does become about, um, yeah, more about like selling artwork versus mm. experiencing artwork. And I think I like, I think I sometimes struggle with this idea because I love the idea that if I could just always paint an installation and it's there for a month and you, people come and experience it of different everyone can come and be inspired to make their own things um but obviously yeah it's it's a different it's 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 about balancing all those aspects so i do actually have now in my studio space part of the reason when i moved into it it's got these big walls and part of the reason that i chose that space was because I like the idea of almost creating something in between like an official art show and more like an open studio where I can play around with big ideas and people can look through the windows or see them. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, like this is part of an exhibition or it's for sale or anything like that. So I guess moving into the future, like it's almost going to be a mix maybe of like, what are these spaces that don't have to be art galleries where I can explore other ideas and 
um, yeah. And, you know, these days I feel like it's like a lot of traditional structures in the world in general are starting mm. to be questioned or to be assessed of like, what are the, what are the good things about the way that these things work? You know, obviously with NFTs and digital artwork and this whole revolution that's happening in that regard is changing things as well. So I think it's good to like reflect on, you know, what are the spaces where we make art and share art? You know, I don't think that working for, I think you can do both. I think you can do commercial work and work with brands. And I think it's really important to make things either for yourself. It doesn't even have to be with a gallery. Like if there's young designers who are, yeah. you know, doing brand work, like it's in the process of making things that is more directed by what your interests are or what's inspiring you where like really interesting work can come from. And I think that's like the most important part of it. Dima, I want to ask you a little bit about other life decisions that you have made uh, because many of the artists and designers that I invite to the podcast have relocated cities and uh, myself, I have relocated cities. Um, Wait, where are uh, you? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm in Berlin, but oh, I, okay. I was born oh, in Argentina. Okay. I moved to yeah. Barcelona, then to The Hague. And then, you know, I, I moved a couple of times, but I've been yeah. living in Berlin for, ten, for over 10 years. And many of the people that I invite to the podcast have relocated cities in one way or another. And I'm always curious to know why, why they did it. You know, why would you choose going somewhere else to, to do the work you want to do, right? And I want to do the same question to you. And I imagine that it has crossed your mind to relocate cities. And I can imagine that your agent or your friends have suggested like, hey, why don't you go for a couple of years in your city or stuff like that. And I yeah. wonder why did you decide to, why did you decide to stay in Sydney? And uh, how do you think that also impacted your career? Mm. This is a good question. And no one's ever actually asked me it before. So I'm pleased that you have asked it. Um, look, you know, Australia, especially, th there is a strong, like culturally, there's like, cultural cringe it's like a thing here where it's like if you're going to make it in whatever field you have to leave and go to mm. New York or LA or Europe um so when my career started to gain momentum in it was 2012 2013 um I definitely started to travel a lot like to the US and to America and that had a huge impact on, you know, getting clients. I obviously then got an American agent. Uh, a lot of people still actually think that I live in America um, because I would be there so often and my agents are in America. So it was, I think also like the illusion, like no one really knew where I was. Um, but the reality of that then in the following five years, once I started doing mural commissions, was like a lot of travel, you know, like every month, like around. And part of that was exciting and um, thrilling, but I don't think I ever until the last two years actually then got to experience what it is like to be like working as a professional artist and designer and staying in one spot. Um, mm. Because when I did used to travel, I loved the idea of coming home to Sydney, like the lifestyle here, 
I love being near the beach. Um, you know, I moved from Brisbane to Sydney, which was a very small move. Um, but at the time, it made me feel like Sydney was my home that I chose. Um, and it was like my creative home that I chose. It was like all these ideas I was talking before about art school. Like, it felt like this was where it happened um, for me. And I also really, like, I know that being inspired is important and being like in a creative community is important. And when I would travel to these big cities, I would definitely get this boost. But I also had this very strong sense that the best work that I ever made was always just like, it came from being alone in my studio time. Mm. And I felt like it doesn't actually matter where you are. Like that is the most important, that's the place where you create the work. Um, so if you have that, it doesn't matter where you are. Um, I think that was also helped by the fact that social media was taking off. So you could be visible in other places. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, so that's, you know, I, I have always had a soft spot for Sydney and, you know, it's coming up again now, me and my boyfriend are talking about like, you know, you know, I think everyone's in this period like of the pandemic where we've had this long period of staying still and people are kind of getting excited again to, to live back in similar ways or be out there. And I think I'm definitely not going to return to this high travel schedule. It didn't seem good for me or the planet or anything, but I do think there's this feeling of like, okay, maybe, maybe there's somewhere else on the horizon. Um, but it's only very early stages of having that conversation. And I think Sydney will always have a special place in my um, life. So, yeah. So that was a decision you didn't make, or you actually made a decision of staying in one mm. place. And come with me while I try to, you know, kind of do a segue into the next question, which is, so that was a decision you made in your career. I don't need to relocate cities to take off and to find a platform for me to thrive in what I do, right? And, you know, you started with lettering or doing illustrative typography. You know, there are so many ways of defining your work. That's why I'm, I speak about typography and lettering and art and illustration, but you touch on all of these things, right? And, you know, when you started over 10 years ago, the the scene was very different and there's has been a boom in lettering. And I feel that there's the overall perception or I hear from students I work with or from people I interview or I'm in contact through my work um, that there's the overall perception that there's a boom of kind of everything, of lettering artists out there, of illustrators out there, of designers out there right so it seems that there's a boom on all the creative disciplines and you are much more exposed to um what other people is doing in japan and is doing in in the u.s and all over the world right and and i'm wondering like having into account all the decisions you made throughout your career like one of them being for instance Decided, deciding to stay in Sydney and not relocating cities just to get more clients or whatever. Um, what were other decisions that you made that if you were to start your career again, 
you will do again or mm-hmm. you would not do again. I hope that's clear. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, building on your past experience, imagine that you're leaving art school all over again and knowing yeah. all that work for you in the past. What will you do again? And what would, wouldn't you? I think uh, I've actually been thinking about this question for myself um, with like this new next part of my career. I think like what advice like still applies now that would have applied like when I was 20 in, in university. I think the things that I would do the same would probably be um, like focus on real life relationships because when I look back on a lot of the client work that has come along or some of the big projects, it's almost like, um, it seems like magic or like serendipity or like, Oh, like this, this happened. But then when I actually look a bit closer, I often see like, Oh, like, you know, that was someone who I worked at in that design firm. And then they knew there is still like a lot of value, like in genuine human connection. Um, so I think that that continues and potentially is even more powerful with like so many people on social media and so much out there that maybe it's actually like real true human connections that have more of an impact than just digital work being put out there. Um, and then the other thing I think is to like continue to follow those like weird quirks or things that you're really interested in that excite you mm-hmm. as a way of like making your own work. Um, this is also something that I'm again, like trying to reconnect with myself because, you know, it's easy. I think when you're a student to do this because you have a lot of freedom, you don't have clients to lose you. You're just like, it is a experimental time. So you're like, you know, you inspired by like, for me, it might be like weird song lyrics or like just little things that you might make artwork out of that isn't for anyone, but it kind of keeps the fire alive. Um, and to continue to like pursue those, you know, obviously in balance with, you know, making a career or, um, building networks so that you can support yourself to do that. But yeah, it would be like human connection and, you know, tapping into these deep passions that are truly you. Yeah, and that's super interesting because, you know, we started we started speaking about your first step towards, um, you know, finding out what, what you like doing, but also being or getting some sort of exposure. And that for you was in a way social media or going viral with your blog and your videos. And... I find it really interesting that you still make a point on like, yeah, that's that has made or that had an impact on my career, but it's still the things that I feel that had a real impact on getting jobs or really doing the work I love have to do with the real life relationships. And I think that's really like, that's a really grounding concept because nowadays we are so worried about like, being there on social media or you know posting every day and it's like yeah but don't forget about that other thing that is the real life relationships and yeah i i wanted to 
also make a note on, you know, I've been following for ever, Jim. I think the first time we met was uh, in Berlin. You were also, um, uh, it was at the Tsipo Berlin conference. And um, we shortly met at that time. You were, you know, as you said, you that was the moment where you had some sort of momentum with your career or you, you were starting to take off with what you were doing. And I remember, you know, you have a big social media following and social media was a big platform for you as an artist, right? And in a way, you had a lot of exposure um, through social media as well, because you had such a big following on social media. You had um, also you were um, kind of like using social media to show the world, the, the work you were exploring at, at the moment. And I wonder right now, you know, I've seen like a big shift on the way you, you use social media or how less you have started using social media. And I wanted to ask you if this, why this happened and what is, you know, what are the processes behind staying a little bit away from social media? Um, even now that we are all at home, that you're traveling less, that you may have more time in your hands where you could be using that into nurturing your social media accounts but you have decided against that. If I'm not wrong, this is a, an outsider's per perspective and I might be reading this completely wrong, but um, I want to hear from you, like what, what were your decisions behind showing up less on social media? No, you're not wrong. This is like definitely, uh, it's, I definitely pulled back over the last, I'd say it was like probably two years Um it wasn't like a conscious thing. It wasn't like, hey, I'm going to stop using social media. Uh, it was more, I started to notice a few things about the way I was working. And one of them was um, this idea of like being in the studio, making something and almost like one, like thinking in captions, <laughs> mm -hmm. like thinking about what I was making in the way that I was going to tell the world about it. And then also interrupting the process to document it, uh, to share. Hmm. And for a while I kind of like dipped in and out where I would like still do it and miss it or notice that maybe, you know, if I don't post, I don't get as much work. I would like kind of toyed with this idea. And then there was two big blocks this year and last year where I'm like, you know what? I actually just want to make this work for in the process for myself. Um, and I felt as though for like almost 10 years, I had been focusing on like the sharing and not the experience. And it started mm. to become less fun. Um, and like right now I am experiencing very complicated feelings about social media because, you know, I had this big period, especially when I was working in my exhibition where I, didn't even I deleted Instagram or I didn't have the apps and I was in the flow like I know like I experienced joy while I was creating I had true moments of like following an idea seeing where it went next purely from being guided with what felt like the right thing to do as opposed to 
here's a little snippet, like, what do you think? And then using that to shape what comes next. And so now it's coming up to promoting my show and it's almost like I have too much content <laughs> to, to, to process, to share. And I'm, I'm excited. You know, the thing is I'm trying to find a balance now where it's like, I know that when I see something that is really well done or that someone's made with care and excitement, I feel excited to go and make something myself. And that yeah. is the best part about seeing other creators work is like, you're all part of like, we're all connected and we're all making things together in this world. And if you feel good making things and it inspires other people to do that, then that's the best part. But I don't think that's the only thing that, um, social media does. And so I'm like, just trying to work out, like, how do I find the balance between inspiration, sharing, being excited about the things that I've discovered or the processes, um, but fitting that into this new world where it's like, there's so many platforms um, and ways to do that. And part of me is like, adapt or die, make reels, share it that way. And the other part of me is like, no, I'm going to quit now. And like, <laughs> not quitting. So I don't think either of those is going to be the way, but it's definitely something that I'm constantly like navigating. And I think also because I haven't had this travel, I haven't had, um, you know, workshops and speaking events and murals, there's a lot less of the uh, human interaction side of it that used to like inspire me. Um, so I think it'll be an interesting few years ahead of like finding a balance between all of these things. Yeah, I, I think I totally resonate with this idea of like these distractions, social media or or even traveling for work, like getting on the way of the actual work. And yes. I can totally relate as well with this with this mindset of like which I had it as well, especially with Twitter. I actually quit Twitter like a year ago and yeah. it's been life-changing but this idea of like experiencing life through captions like mm. going through and you know thinking on something and then thinking like okay how can I tweet about this thing <laughs> that I'm thinking about now and you know make it funny and clever and it's like so many so much time that goes into just creating a tweet <laughs> and just freeing yourself from that I think uh, it can be really liberating and it can allow a space for a lot of other things that are perhaps more meaningful. And yeah. I I can still see a clear concern there, which is like, hey, I still want to inspire people and I still want to speak about this work that I have created for this show. And, you know, how can I do that without getting on the way of my own work, right? And um, I think is perhaps finding, I'm thinking out loud here, but for me it has been perhaps finding more, more efficient way of sharing my work or my own creative path that doesn't have to do with being constantly oversharing what I do at every minute of my life, right? Yeah. So, you know, allowing some sort of blocks where I kind of, think of what I want to say or what are the, the, the messages that I want to put out there in the world and kind of working on them, you know, focusing on what I want to say and kind of 
you know, allowing chunks of time to do that and then just living my life normal without having yes. to share things constantly on social media. I think that has made a big difference in yeah, my I own. I do think um, that sounds like the approach of like, it's almost like now because it is, you know, when it started, it was different, but now it's almost like another part of your business that you have to kind of like, you know, if you want to communicate effectively, it takes time sometimes to like, you know, do that. And it is, and when choosing when it's important and what's important um, and making the time to do it. So, yeah. Totally. So I want to dig as a last question, I want to dig a little bit deeper into what's your exhibition about the exhibition you're working mm -hmm. Um, next, which is coming up on China Hates uh, in Sydney, right? Um, yeah. At our, is it is it already done? Is it ready? Are you working yeah. on that right now? So it's finished. It's so it opens tomorrow night. So 24 hours from now, the opening will be finishing up. Uh, so yeah, I finished all the work. It's hanging in the gallery. Uh, it's been about a year of working on it at different stages um, and kind of tying together everything that we've talked about, you know, like the being in one place, not traveling, being in the studio, having more time for an art practice. I really like wanted to like use this as a way to one, create stuff all by hand. And the reason I say that is because I've done previous exhibitions where I did screen printed elements and, Obviously, with digital client work, it's computer-based. So I wanted to go back to this real analog, working with pencil, charcoal, oil pastel, and paint. Um, so the name of the exhibition is Seasons, and mm. it's more an umbrella term, you know, something that people are familiar with, but that really represented, uh, like, my experiences during this time with, you know, starting to notice the weather changing in one spot or, like, Yeah. Even just being aware of like, you know, when we were in lockdown in Sydney, I would go for these walks um, up Oxford Street at night and notice like there was a really bright star and then realize, you know, using the app with the planets that it was Venus and like these very small uh, little joys of curiosity that started to happen. And, um, you know, I'm always keeping little phrases to maybe turn into art. Um, So things like witnessing something that someone might turn into a landscape, but using the words to describe it. So one of them says day moon over shark Island. And it's quite a weird thing. Like it maybe doesn't make sense to you. Um, but it was literally, I was sitting on a ferry one day with this extra time and I look out and I saw this beautiful crescent moon above an Island in Sydney called shark Island. And I just found this beautiful moment of stillness on the ferry and I just like it because, you know, especially in like the lettering world, we're always using quite generic phrases of things mm. like, or speaking things that people know or an inspirational quote. And so I'm like, I want it to be like really weird and specific to something. Um, and I also wanted to stop, uh, to start just playing with color and moving away from like really detailed illustration and just exploring color shifts, um, So it was basically a collection of all these little experiences, looking at clouds, listening to podcasts about astrophysics and space. And, um, and over the year of drawing and creating based on these experiences, it started to naturally come together around this idea of like, 
you know, seasons or a passing of time or just even having a reference point, like something like that, you know, like spring and what you come to expect from this thing that we know. And then maybe it doesn't turn out how we expect. So it was almost like a metaphor, um, I guess, for this period of change and uncertainty, uh, but also with an undercurrent of like optimism um, and excitement for maybe what's next. So I really went out there with color and um, the big four canvases that will feature on the main wall are loosely linked to, you know, spring, summer, autumn, winter, but, you know, they're not literal um, as you might expect. And it was a very, yeah, it was a beautiful period of being in the studio and just exploring. So I'm very excited to like open it up to, well, not the world, just Sydney, because no one can come here at the moment, but you know, I'll be sharing some more over the coming months. So yeah, super excited. So I'm going to add this, uh, the link to the show on our show notes so that everyone can go check it out. But also, I, I appreciate that you sort of walk us through the process of creating an exhibition and what comes together when creating the concept for an exhibition, which is like to me really new in the sense of like being someone who works primarily for clients, for someone, you know, who creates through the request of a, you know, a client assignment or yeah, a certain project, um, the way you navigate creating a project or a show for a gallery is so different, right? And I can yeah. totally understand why you continue doing that because <laughs> it's so fulfilling to just put all these thoughts together and these experiences together into something that is really personal. And especially when it comes to typography, as you said, we illustrate messages from other people or things that other people want to communicate. And there's a big power into illustrating your own thoughts and your own or the own words you want to illustrate. So I can totally understand now why you continue investing some time into creating your shows and, you know, allowing space in your agenda to create these shows because it must be so fun to put all this together. Yeah, you should do one, Martina. <laughs> <laughs> Gemma, thank you so much for today's um, conversation. Um, there are so many things that you have shared, and I'm sure that listeners will find it super insightful. Um, where can people find you? So you can visit my website, GemmaO'Brien.com. Uh, if you want to work with me, it's LL Raps. And of course, Instagram, Mrs. Eves 101. Mrs. Eves 101. Yeah, I yeah. remember that. I definitely <laughs> follow you. And I'm going to add this to my show notes as well. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Thank you, Gemma, again. And see you on the next episode of Open Studio. Bye-bye. Awesome. Thank you. Bye. So this is it. I hope you loved this episode. You can find me, the host of the show, on social networks at Martina Flor on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you have a question or comments, go to martinaflor.com slash podcast, where you can see previous episodes, find show notes, and send voice memos with your comments and questions. You can also watch these episodes on YouTube. Just go to martinaflor.com slash YouTube to find them. You can, of course, listen to all our episodes on your favorite podcast platform. If you loved 
this episode, subscribe to this podcast. And if you leave us a review, it will help others find us. Thank you all for listening and see you in the next episode of Martina Flores Open Studio. Bye-bye.